I have climbed every tree in my front, my front and backyard twice. But you see how that's kind of relates more to, to children, right? Runs and climbs. I meant like, yes, yes, I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, you might be the exception to the rule here, but. You see what I mean? You got to be crazy. It's too late to be saying you got to go full tilt through because you're only given a little spark of that. If you lose that, you have nothing to teach. From me to you, don't ever lose that because it keeps you alive. So today's topic, we're exploring what is ADHD and the history behind the label from the DSM to the way that parents and students and teachers and individuals now who are diagnosed in childhood, like Stephen and I, internalized and understood the label or misunderstood. And we've recorded a few sound bites from individuals that have ADHD. Let's do it. Let's jump right in. What is ADHD? Um, hmm. I think... ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or hyperactive disorder. I actually don't know. Attention deficit hyperactivity displacement. (laughs) That sounds shitty. Attention deficit hyperactive disorder. And... Hmm. Well, I think H stands for hyperactivity. Um, so ADD and ADHD are, let me see, ADD is attention deficit disorder and ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The difference is that ADD is essentially the same disorder without hyperactivity. You know, I, I don't know the, the technical specifics. But... I would say that it's a condition in which you have trouble focusing on one thing at a time for a prolonged period of time if that thing doesn't really interest you. No matter (laughs) how hard you try um, or how good your intentions are, ultimately some kind of like unbeknownst force will get in your way. (laughs) I find it to mean that you can't tell the difference between what's important and what isn't important. So picking up that paper clip and unfolding it is exactly as important as writing your paper is exactly as important as calling your friend who you haven't spoken to in six weeks, which is exactly as important as getting up and making peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like the world is a very stimulating place and there's a lot of stuff going on as a result of kind of like overexcitement from everything around you. It is hard to focus on just one thing. You know, it's where that hyperactive, the H comes in of that mind wanting to jump all, you know, over the place. The deficit of attention is the inability to focus on, uh, you know, one thing at a time. And the disorder is uh, what we like to call it. So we've done a bit of research. The CDC has a great PDF that shows the history of ADHD. And it goes all the way back to the early 1900s. You took a look at that too, Stephen. What did you think about that? Um, I love it. We've seen, you and I have seen a few uh, timeline representations for the history of ADHD. Some of them more wacky than others, going all the way back to a mention of Fidgety Phil even mentions in Moliere of a young duke or a king who couldn't keep his butt in his seat. This is what I'll call the most professional or clinical while also being colorful and very digestible. Sir Alexander Crichton, a Scottish physician, described the sensitivity of nerves, and that was in 1798. Whether or not that was ADHD specifically, we also have a very old example, which you referred to earlier, and that's Fidgety Phil. Fidgety Phil was a three-year-old 
named Carl Philip. He was described by Herrick Hoffman, a German physician and psychiatrist. He interestingly described this this child as having boundless energy and, and what we now refer to as hyperactivity. The same physician described someone named Johnny Look in the Air. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think that refers to? Uh, a teacher once told the class, an English teacher, that we, very romantically, we don't spend enough time looking up in the air. We're always in our phones or looking at the ground. And I was shocked at this idea because I had spent the better part of my life looking all over the air. And if at the slightest sound of an airplane passing by or a bird fluttering by, my eyes were always up here. So I had no idea what they were talking about. But uh, I guess that's in keeping with with look in the air. Was it Johnny? I guess I was I was taunty look in the air. That could be one of the first examples in 1847 of someone that had distractibility. There's two main presentations as what the DSM is referring to them. One is the hyperactive form and one is the more inattentive form. I believe that this example really kind of shines a light on the long and kind of extensive history of ADHD or, or people presenting with ADHDs. And the CDC graphic really tracks it all the way back to the early 1900s. Now, when you hear ADHD, what do you think of, Stephen? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yes. Do you ever hear any confusion with ADHD and ADD? I was the very target of confusion. <laughs> I was I was confused myself. How's that? Uh, well, I was diagnosed ADD when I was about 8 to 10 years old. At the time of my diagnosis, you were either ADD or ADHD. ADHD meant you couldn't sit still in your chair and ADD meant you had trouble finishing your homework. It wasn't until college that I heard from actually a friend from New York who had way more specialized uh, therapy. This difference between ADHD and ADD was fading away or ADD wasn't really a thing. And now people were saying ADHD type one, type two, type three. And I did some research and I was like, this makes way more sense. And it was then that I adopted ADHD type one inattentive for me, not knowing at the time that I may not have been a hundred percent accurate. And the point is, is that we're not really supposed to differentiate these things ourselves. And we're not supposed to self-diagnose because the people that diagnose are supposed to be either a therapist, like a social worker, a licensed clinical social worker, or a psychologist, or someone with the credentials to diagnose. So while we may feel, right, parents may feel like my kid is hyperactive, or a teacher may feel like, yes, this student of mine is acting out and being disruptive and they're presenting with these symptoms. We want to be careful not to label people or jump to conclusions and say, you are ADHD, or they have ADHD, because this is a formal diagnosis. This is a formal label. And the label comes with it a lot of stigma and a lot of implications for treatment. Now, let me rewind a little bit, uh -huh. trace the history for all of us. We're on the current fifth version of the DSM. That was in 2012. For our listeners, what does the DSM stand for? 
Diagnostic Statistical Manual. It's put out by the APA or American Psychological Association. And it's a panel of psychologists, researchers, and psychiatrists that bring the experts from around the field and decide on what the current trends are in the research. And this is the manual that's used in diagnosing. The first DSM in 1952, DSM-1, that was minimal brain dysfunction. That's what they called ADHD. There was an issue though, because minimal brain dysfunction, the term minimal, what do you, what do you think of when you hear that term minimal? When I hear minimal brain dysfunction, I happen not to hear the dysfunction word. I actually hear minimal brain function when you say that to me. I don't even hear the dysfunction. After a little bit, I, I understand that minimal brain dysfunction seems to be just a little bit of dysfunction, it, it, like some small amount of brain misfiring. And it's not very descriptive, right? No, no, very. to do with attention or hyperactivity. Very vague. Impulsivity. It, it really yeah. doesn't describe it. It's just anyone that has like a head injury or a, something that's not oh, right, yeah. going right with your brain might, anyone could fall into that category. If you had a lazy eye, that could be minimal brain dysfunction. And, and minimal kind of minimizes the severity. So the DSM-2 comes out. It's 1968. DSM-2 labels attention deficit disorder at the time, hyperkinetic reaction of childhood, hyperkinesis. Okay, which sounds like a superpower. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, suddenly we've planted the X-Men seed, the idea that the ADHD is an X-Man. You know, Concerta actually had a comic briefly Concerta had a superhero character. Shut the front door. What was the wait? What was the name of the superhero character? Medication Man or uh... Concerta superhero? <laughs> no. Yeah, they put out a comic book. Was it like it was it like back in the the day? Medikids explaining living with ADHD. Is that it? Metaman. That's what it is. Yes. Medikids. Yes. Oh my gosh. So Concerta put out a comic book that was like Meta Man, and he's now able to pay attention with the help of stimulant medication. Living with ADHD. Okay. Okay. So the DSM-2 says, well, the DSM-1, sorry, the DSM-1 called it. DSM-1 was minimal brain dysfunction. And then DSM-2 says. Hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. Wow. Okay. Hyperkinesis. And that was in 1968. The DSM-3 comes out in 1980, and the label they have the disorder as is ADD with or without hyperactivity. So they separated the two, with or without. There was these qualifiers. And they were both, but they were both called ADD, ADD. just with or without. Got right. it. And then the DSM-3R, which is a revision that was put out, adds in ADHD undifferentiated ADD. So they have ADHD and then undifferentiated ADD. Now I'm definitely confused. Yes, and rightly so, because I think no one really knew what that meant. I believe that that was a more catch-all, like anyone okay. that didn't fit into the other two categories. Oh, got it. They threw them in that one. And then the DSM-4 comes out in 1994. And with the DSM-4, it presents the label as ADHD and there's a combined type or it has subtypes. Okay. So this is probably where, where your diagnosis comes into play. 
Right. I was born in 1991, and you were born in 19, when, 84? 83. 83. So you, you would have had the DSM-3R? Is that what they used to diagnose you? Or the, the dsm 4 I definitely had the DSM-4. It was probably the DSM-4. I think we both were probably diagnosed under the DSM-4. So when we were diagnosed, there were subtypes. Okay. But now, in 2013, DSM-5, they changed the diagnosis again. There are no subtypes. The subtypes went away. And now they're referred to as presentations. Okay, so I wasn't off. Wait, I wasn't off. For the four years that I was in college, I was told that, that ADD had kind of melted away and now that there is these subgroups and that I was type 1. To be more specific is that ADHD type 1 was inattentive and type 2 was hyperactive and type 3 was a combined version of both. Is that right? Right. Okay. So that ceases to exist the year that I graduate college, without me knowing, mind you. I knew that DSM-5 came out, but clearly I didn't do my homework because I went on believing in the three types that made the most sense to me. Just to recap a little bit, the DSM-4, you had to meet six symptoms. The broader categories are inattention, hyperactivity slash impulsivity, inattentive type symptoms. So those are the broad categories, inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity, or a combination therein. Now, you had to meet six of these symptoms across the board. If you met five, but not six, too bad. Okay. Why is that a problem? Why did the community of psychologists feel like that was an issue? Can I take a guess? Sure, go ahead. So there are six symptoms and you have to meet all six to be considered ADHD, whatever type it was. Three issues come to mind. One, only displaying certain symptoms at a certain age and displaying more of them over time. Two, and sort of attached to number one, if you have five of the six, which is a vast majority, but not the sixth, and then you don't get the official diagnosis, then that child, who very well might be ADHD on a sliding scale, is now non-eligible for the extended time, the extra help that us ADHDers get. And the third thing that comes to mind is the difference simply in gender, men and women, boys and girls. Who's to say that those six symptoms are displayed by both men and women in the same way that they're displayed? And if I remember correctly, most of these studies are being done predominantly by men on boys. So who's to say that young girls exhibit the same six symptoms? Well, it was always easier to identify boys because boys have the disruptive qualities. They're hyperactive. You can point to it. So oftentimes the boys were getting identified and flagged earlier and more consistently than the girls. And girls, and this is not, this is a generalization because there are females with hyperactive form ADHD or the combined type ADHD. But overall, females tend to present with the inattentive form, the more distractible inattention without hyperactivity. And that flies under the radar. That's harder for a teacher or a parent to put their finger on and say, yes, that is ADHD. Because a lot of people, parents, teachers, assume that you have to have hyperactivity because the H is within the, the label mm, itself. Got it. Right. So it's a bit confusing. So just to set the, the record straight here, best way to think about this, think of it as an umbrella label. ADHD is an umbrella term. Under that, there are these presentations of it, the different ways that it's expressed outwardly. Because we know it's a neurobiological condition. Something is happening in the brain. 
executive functioning dysfunction or executive functioning issues. Now that has to do with how your brain is wired, how your brain is wired differently, how it functions internally. But what we see on the outside, what a teacher sees or what a parent sees in terms of behavior, they're not doing their homework. My kid's not following directions. My kid's having a hard time getting started or finishing things. That has to do with executive functioning. That has to do with motivation, effort, and short-term memory. So those things are actually more descriptive of the disorder. But to diagnose, the DSM still puts more of these externalized symptoms as a way to classify things. And that's where it gets a little bit confusing and a little muddied. Let me read off some of these things. Let me know if you think that it's very clear and precise or it's kind of a little bit, well... Maybe you know, almost any kid could have this. And which, which DSM is this from? I'm going to read from the DSM-4. And it hasn't changed all that much, honestly, to the DSM-5. They, they changed it a little bit, but not that much. So I'll, I'll read from the DSM-4, though. Okay. Each, each one that I, that I relate to, like, immediately, I'll go, <laughs> Okay. Yeah often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork or other activities. Me. Often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Mm. Often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Mm. Often does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties in the workplace. Me. Often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Me. Often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. Mm. Often loses things necessary for tasks or activities. Toys, school assignments, pencils, books. Me. Is often easily distracted by extraneous stimuli. Did you hear something? Weirdest thing outside. It's just bizarre. I think I just saw that. You were saying something about distractibility or easily something, something. Is often forgetful in daily activities. Yeah. Oof. Me? So that's all inattentive type. So if you meet six of those, okay, you qualify for the inattentive type criteria according to the DSM-4. So the hyperactivity, and, and you can feel free to make some, some noises with this one as well. Oh, ha- happily. Often fidgets with hands or feet or squirms in seat. Often leaves seat in classroom or in other situations in which remaining seated is expected. Next one. Often runs about or climbs excessively in situations in which it is inappropriate. I have climbed every tree in my front and backyard twice. But you see how that's kind of relates more to to children, right? Runs and climbs. I meant like, Yes, yes I, I know, I know. <laughs> I know, you, you might be the exception to the rule here, but I, next thing is often has difficulty playing or engaging in leisure activities quietly. Definitely me. Is often on the go or often acts as driven by a motor. Depending on what was the popular culture reference for internal motor at any given phase of my life, I was nicknamed that thing. So when I was in middle school, it was Speedy Gonzalez. That was my nickname, uh, or Roadrunner. When I was in high school, it was Jack Russell Terrier. Post high school, I've been referred to as some smattering of the Energizer Bunny, a, a self-sustaining power source, and an alien. So, looks like you're 
identifying with a lot of the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms here. But let's get into impulsivity too. Okay. Under impulsivity, there's often blurts out answers before questions have been completed. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes, you described that in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. Often has difficulty awaiting turn. My hand was just always up. I think my hand was frozen in a, in, in a consistent state of... Pick me, pick yeah. me. Every question, even if I didn't know the answer. Often interrupts or intrudes on others, butts into conversations or games. Earlier on, definitely. But I've, I've been really mindful about that. I've worked on that. All right. So basically in the DSM-4, you had three subtypes, okay? You had attention deficit slash hyperactivity disorder, combined type, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, predominantly inattentive type. And then you had attention deficit slash hyperactivity disorder, predominantly hyperactive impulsive type. Now, DSM-5. It does away with a few of the items from DSM-4, like the subtypes. Now they refer to them as presentations because subtypes made it seem like I think there was a subtype of a major type. Well, well then what's the, what's the dominant type, right? If it's a subtype, then what's the predominant type? For many years, they felt like the hyperactive form was the predominant type because that was where the diagnosis started. It started in boys, only seeing boys as having the hyperactivity and then it just going away in, into adolescence once they go through puberty. Knowledge of the condition has changed to point to the fact that it's more of a neurological basis. There's a neurobehavioral biological basis to this, not just simply the behavioral aspects. Yeah. So with that knowledge, it's how you're showing those things, how you present rather than this subtype that's unique underneath it. Cause that got some confusion. And I still think there's some confusion even to this day. The best way to think about this is it's continuum from mild to moderate to severe. Okay. So it's more on a spectrum. And they also changed autism spectrum disorder similarly. So now it's one diagnosis. They took out Asperger's that doesn't exist anymore, which is high functioning autism and they see that within the spectrum they lump that within the spectrum of functioning oh. low autism all the way to high functioning adhd is similar in that yeah. now we're, we're we are gearing more towards a spectrum classification rather than a rather than a, rather rather than a specific label that is in any way distinct from its family right so you're you instead of you you're you're this type of ADHD, you're now ADHD with these flavors. Presenting, yeah, with presenting with a vanilla flavor versus chocolate. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Or a swirl, or a swirl. Or a swirl. I should probably get reevaluated. So we've just gone over the history of the DSM up to the present day. And now we're at 2013. This is the DSM-5. Woo! Yes, so the changes in the DSM-5. I'm going to just go through a few of them. The first is now teens and adults can be diagnosed with ADHD. Before that, ADHD was seen as a childhood disorder. But now the research, the most current research, points to the fact that there's, for a lot of people, a lifelong prevalence. And it persists into, into adulthood. Having teens and adults being able to be diagnosed makes sense. And what is the verbiage there? Because that was very significant in my life. I don't know, I don't know if you can relate, Aaron, but when I was first diagnosed... 
at around 8 to 10, about five years after that in high school, my pediatrician told me that my ADHD was going to go away by the time I hit puberty or just thereafter, that I would just no longer be ADHD, which is obviously not at all true. Right, right. And that was the prevailing wisdom at the time that ADHD does just go away. It's a disorder of childhood. And then once you go through puberty, you would then just kind of your symptoms would would dissipate over time into adulthood. But now we realize that it's not just a behavioral disorder. It's a neurobiological disorder that is developmental in nature. So it does change over time, but it doesn't go away for most folks. It, it changes and shifts in its presentation. Like hyperactivity may present in adulthood differently than it did in childhood. In childhood, you may have been bouncing off the walls and running around or climbing trees and I was. Even as an adult. <laughs> yeah. In, instead, now it's you can't sit through a meeting at work or, or you can't sit through a movie. The other thing that changed with the DSM-5 is that before you had to have the symptoms present before the age of seven. And now they move that up to 12. Those are two very different times in the developing child's life. So why, why the shift from seven to 12? The idea behind that was that the original diagnosis of the age of seven, that was because it was first grade. It was a time where the child moved from kindergarten or being able to just kind of play and relate to right. others and this fun Very hands-on care, smaller class sizes. Yeah, to this stuff that's like more reading or writing or other skills and the, and the workload increases. So that's when symptoms start to appear. But the issue is, with having more and more teens and adults being diagnosed later on in life, it's harder to remember back to that age and to track those symptoms all the way back to the age of seven if they don't get flagged early. That's part of the reason why now we have the later onset age. Okay, so the last thing I wanna yeah. talk about is yeah. how do we internalize the label? We've gone over the label, it's ADHD, we've talked about the history, but what does that mean? What does that mean? for children, for parents, for us individually having ADHD? How do we choose to adopt and internalize a label? And how do we deal with this label? It's gotten far more specific. On the positive side of things, when you list out those titles, those diagnoses, those diagnostic labels from the 50s to now, the chronology is, is in some ways silly early on. I mean, you know, hyperkinesis and minimal brain dysfunction into hyperkinesis. And now, you know, 60 plus years later, we do finally have a, a more specific label. Yes, it's, it is more specific and it's more descriptive, but yes. there's still some issues with it, right? Yes, for sure. Don't have the most positive feelings towards the label, right? My, my biggest issue with the label is and has always been that it is net negative. The severity is carried more than the positive potential in the diagnosis. The label carries with it a more negative weight. It's literally more negative than positive. I, I like to make the semantic breakdown, right? Three parts negative, one part neutral. Attention, neutral. Deficit, hyperactivity, disorder. Those are three negative words compared to one neutral in a label. So I, the parent or the young adult or the student who receives that label 
on its face is more negative than positive. Add to that 50 plus years of cultural commentary on the label and a deep stigmatization of labels like ADHD, autism, bipolar. And you've got yourself a real serious and more often sad than happy diagnosis. For the parent, it immediately red flags, oh, this is a problem child, you know? You, you hear that from teachers, like you actually hear the phrase problem child. It's got, a, it's got such a negative stigma that if I, a parent, hears that, I am more likely to be stressed out or freak out than I am to wear a smile because I'm not thinking of all the positive potential, the mirror traits, those positive mirror traits that Hallowell speaks of, that my stunner daughter may have or will have. I'm thinking about the struggle, right? I'm thinking, you know, I'm a parent, I'm protecting, it's, and my instinct is to protect this life, right? I'm thinking of how challenging that's gonna be. And every, and every parent wants their child to have everything they didn't have. Every parent yeah. Yeah. wants to believe my child is special, is is good, is smart, is capable, and they can have whatever they set their mind to. And then if you get slapped with a diagnosis or a label that then has a negative connotation, for many parents, even just accepting that is hard. But then secondly, how do you explain that to your kid while still holding that hope and telling them they can they can do whatever they can? Stigma. Stigma and the diagnosis. How we choose to internalize the message and how we explain that message to our kids, that, that can kind of set them up for success or what it can do is it can impact them in a very negative way where they start to believe they have some kind of disability, some kind of lack of an ability that holds them back in their lives. And that's, that's core to our mission here. Yeah. We're not trying to come up with a brand new label or say, hey, we shouldn't call this ADHD. We need to call this attention different. We're kind of reclaiming and reframing the label instead right. of trying to relabel the condition. It's about how we decide to talk about the label, how we internalize the label, and how we choose to look at the condition. And by saying attention different, there's not that a negative connotation. There's not that stigma associated with it. It's just, it's a difference. We're trying to be accurate but not overly positive, like how Hallowell is. Then on the other side, on the polar opposite side, you have someone like, like Russell Barkley, who really hammers home ADHD is a severe impairment. It's a very real diagnosis. It can have serious life consequences, drug abuse, incarceration, uh, dropout rates, all these things will go down the line. And those are true. Both sides have validity. Both sides have some perspectives, I think, that we believe are real. But at the same time, they are skewed a little bit in how they're approaching it. Their own experiences in life and their own ideas around the disorder really do kind of skew their position. And we're trying to speak to this coming from the community, from people yeah. diagnosed ourselves. I may have a mental health degree and some education, and I'm an ADHD coach, and I work with families. But on this podcast, I'm more coming from a personal standpoint. I want to bring that perspective of how does it feel as someone with ADHD and how did I feel as a child growing up with this label? I dream of a time, I hope for a time, when a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a primary care physician hands a parent or an adult a single pamphlet, not a Barclay pamphlet and a Hallowell pamphlet separate, but a single pamphlet that says, so your kid is ADHD, question mark, or so you're an adult with ADHD, question mark. And in there, the first line 
you are attention different, not deficit. Mm. And beneath that, there is a discussion of the challenges, but also the positives, thereby taking it seriously and giving it the credit that it deserves as a, a chemical difference in the brain, right? And a difference in brain wiring, but also celebrating what is possible with this unique brain. And that's why I believe on the back of that pamphlet should be headshots of the top 25 people with ADHD who have succeeded in the varying fields in which ADHDers inhabit, right? Right. And it should be, it should be an all-inclusive packet. Imagine like the emergency escape cards from an airplane. Yeah. I see it like that. Trifold. It starts the whole thing out with your attention different, not deficit. And here, here's all all of both positive and, and, and challenging information instead of, yeah. boom, here are the problems. Oh my gosh, okay, we got to, you know, you have to get a time. Like your he, she is going to have issues with this, issues with that. Okay, so you need to get a psych eval, you need to do this. And we have to talk about medications, and we have to talk about prescriptions. It's all about the problems and what's wrong, yeah. how it's how it's limiting, and how you have to accept it, how, how bad this the news is of the disorder. It's almost like if PCPs or psychologists could be more like go- like a really good college guidance counselor. If if your PCP was like, hey, so Johnny here or Sarah here is ADHD, and here are the areas that are going to be a challenge. However, let's make a plan. Let's let's start talking about what their interests are. Let's track and monitor what they're attracted to, what they're naturally magnetized to. Let's let's make a list of those things that pump dopamine naturally. What can you what can we start coaching in them so that they have a world to play in as they develop, right? So that they have a world to to fight in, to be gritty in. We are an animal species after all, and we do have survival, right? Like a survival tendency. And we, the ADHD -er, we will look for that thing that's interesting. You and I have talked about this before. One of the most fascinating elements of the brain, we will seek out dopamine. We're stimulus driven. So we're going to find the thing that, that stimulates us. So if you, if you, the conscious parent or teacher or PCP journal that and take note of that, observe that, they're going to have an easier time. You're going to have an easier time. Exactly. We know the brain of ADHD folks is wired differently. And part of the brain wiring that's different is that we're not as, it's harder for us to activate the release of dopamine and those dopamine circuits and norepinephrine and other types of neurochemicals that activate and motivate. And the reason is like the typical rewards or the typical things that, that most kids get motivated towards, like I'm going to get a grade at the end of the semester or I have to turn the paper in on Friday and, and it's Monday and so I should be working on this and I know that so I get motivated. Those things aren't strong enough. We need stronger motivators. We need motivators that are in our face and are more immediate. One of the problems with the label itself is when there's this doom and gloom approach to it and the ultra severity of it. And there was a reason to do that for the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, even just getting ADHD to be generally accepted in the public eye, that was the mission. There was a demand to make it serious. The yes, demand there was a need. It's not just a demand. There was a need. A there was a need. Yes, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. There was a life or death need. Yeah, there, there was, was a, a need for services, a need for yeah. support, a need to get an IEP, a need to get a 504 plan. Those yeah. need to be taken seriously and on par with a medical condition. There is a real need to do it, but I think we've grounded that corner and we've right. crossed that threshold. And now we're, we're almost, we're not quite out, quite out of the woods yet, but we're rounding that bend. And now we're on, almost on the other side of that. Your right. point right there of handing that family 
a form to talk to their child about all of the positive sides along with, so here's the challenges and here are some potential upsides based on your child, your child's natural talents, abilities, interests, aptitude, whatever it is that, that they're scoring high on. Because to only focus on the negative and only focus on the problems, that has a potentially devastating impact on the child's ability to see themselves yes. with confidence and have a positive self-concept in the future. It's not about the, the talent that, that set them up for an advantage. Most often than not, the people that succeed aren't the most talented right off the bat. More often than not, they are the grittiest. Mm-hmm. They're the people that can overcome the challenges that are persistent and that stick with it. And keep hitting the pavement no matter what. Keep getting up, keep getting back in the game. And that's exactly what ADHD does for us. That persistence and that determination and that resiliency, we uniquely have those abilities. We have a monopoly on those abilities. Yeah, exactly. We were the gift that we received, at least as you and I believe it and you and I argue, the gift that we received is that internal motor. It's, It's exactly that Energizer Bunny quality that in certain contexts can can present as disruptive or present as out of turn or out of line. But in the right context, that natural innate ability or that innate need to keep going, keep going, keep finding dopamine release, it is that quality when channeled well that elevates ADHDers into an upper echelon of work ethic. Some of those very same qualities that that don't serve us well sometimes. The short-term memory issues, impulsivity. In some contexts, those are exactly what are our saving grace and the things that help us achieve great heights. Short-term memory, which I suffer from terribly, and impulsivity. If you flip those, what is the positive side of short-term memory? I don't hold grudges. I move on very quickly. If I fail or if I fall over or if or if your power goes out and we lose in a recording, like what just happened 30 minutes ago, I don't think about it longer than a minute and a half because I don't have room for it. I don't have like, a, it's almost like it's it's intellectual and emotional, right? It's emotional intellect and Intellect, intellect. That need to to find that next thing to look at, that want to find one more new thing and, and move on and, and to something more exciting, we get yeah. bored easily. And we get bored with staying in the shit too long, staying yeah. in problems. We get bored with being depressed. You know, most people with ADHD, while, while depression does co-occur, yeah. sometimes, a lot of us are too uh, hyperactive or too inattentive to stay with that depression for too long because we're yeah. like- We're over it. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, there, and I feel confident claiming that. I, we're, I, I will point to it and go, I could be pissed about this, but that's actually holding me back from doing other interesting things. It is, it is a feature of our unique profile. We don't stay down in the, the muck of despair no. for too long. We might really experience it hard. We, we're, we're very emotional or, or empathic people. We may yes. really break down and it, it can have a really bad day one day or even a bad week, but we bounce back hard and, yeah. and it's fast. Oftentimes it's like we go from, from zero to back to a hundred fairly quickly. We need some time to recharge the batteries, but those batteries come right back yes. online. And now we're like, all right, that happened. That sucked. And some things that would, would completely derail someone and send them into the gutter and they'd be like, oh my God, I just got fired from this job. Or, oh my God, I just failed this entire semester. What am I, I'm just going to drop out of school altogether. We come back. We come back with a vengeance and we're like, no, no, that happened, but we're not letting that hold us back. 
we're coming back. Not only just come back, we're going to come back with this fighting spirit, this grit. All the stuff we talked about today, there's resources that we're going to be posting. It's going to be in the show notes. So check that out. And it's also posted on the website. So please check out all that we collected here for you today. I mean, a large part of these episodes are going to be based or rooted in the research that Aaron and I do behind the scenes. And we want to share that. So anytime that we have an opportunity to share a resource, we will. And it'll be super easy to find on the website under uh, resources in our in our podcast yes so we were gonna we're gonna post those resources up check out the links check out the resources and we will be back with our next episode episode two please subscribe and reach out episode two and episode two will be about i am versus i have the great debate i am am. versus i have adhd exactly exactly all right that's it man (laughs) <laughs> you see what I mean? You got to be crazy. Too late to be sane. You got to go full tilt, full zoom. Because you're only given a little spark of that. We are attention. If you lose that, you're not attention. Pay attention. No.